He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we begin our time in God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the throne of grace. Our Father, we're so thankful for what we are learning in this study of Ephesians, how it focuses our attention on the church and on us as members of this unique, distinct organism, the body of Christ, and that as the body of Christ, we are to represent him, we are to glorify him, and we are to come to understand these many blessings that you have given to us, that we might exploit them and use them, and that we might pursue spiritual maturity, that not only will we be a trophy of grace in this life, but that we might be prepared for our future uh, ministry as we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom. And we pray that we might be motivated to do so, living today in light of eternity and not living for ourselves. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1 going to have a little review today, but we're going to get into the meaning of this next phrase in the verse related to the dispensation of the fullness of times, what that means and why it is significant and important for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Just by way of review, what we have seen from Ephesians 1, 7 to 8 is the wealth of God's grace that has been lavished Upon us, He has abounded this grace to us, and we, that is, we as church-age believers, we as those who are in Christ, we have, above all people, have, been, have experienced more grace than any other people in any other dispensation. We saw this in John 1, 16 through 17, the wealth of God's grace that has abounded to us. And if we look at the flow of Paul's thought here, starting in verse 7 down through verse 10, he starts off emphasizing the wealth of God's grace that he lavished or he abounded to us, and that part of this is that he has made known to us additional revelation, the mystery of his will, which takes us into the second point, which is that part of this abundant revelation is the expanded revelation from God, which is called a mystery that is previously unrevealed information. And both the lavishing of grace 
And the giving of this additional information and revelation is for a purpose. And that's what we get into when we get to verse 10. It is for the purpose that in the future, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together all things. So this is vital information for us today in light of where we are headed and where God is taking us. So we have this new information, this additional revelation, this disclosure of God's plan and purpose to us in the New Testament. And third, we saw that the content of this mystery doctrine within this epistle is later defined in Ephesians 3, 5 through 6 as this new spiritual entity distinct from Israel with a distinct purpose in God's plan and in history and an entity where Jew and Gentile are gathered together equally in this one body in Christ. And that's described in Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. A fourth thing that we have seen is that both in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, which speaks of the dispensation or the administration of grace, and in our passage in Ephesians 1.10, we have this word, uh, oikonomia, which is translated in some older translations as a dispensation, not a user-friendly word in today's world or culture. But uh, in both of these verses, that word is used. Sometimes it's translated in more modern translations as administration. And this is vital to understanding God's plan and purposes in history, and since we are each individually in history, we need to understand this because it applies to our perception, our understanding of the Word of God. Many people have commented over the years that that which opened up the meaning of Scripture to them was the understanding of two vital teachings in Scripture, two vital doctrines. The first is dispensationalism understanding that God has a different way of administering the human race in different periods of time. His administration shifts depending on the amount of revelation that is given. That's called the progress of revelation. The second teaching, which is part of what we're covering now on Tuesday nights in a new way, has to do with the angelic conflict, the angelic rebellion, the rebellion of Satan against God's uh, God's rule, his desire to be like him, and that this plays a vital role in understanding that scope and dimension of of uh, the, the dispensations and of God's plan and purposes in human history. So the fourth point in review is understanding the importance of dispensationalism, and that is the teaching that is distinctive to a a, a group of uh, a, a, a theological system, and we'll get into that in just a minute. So we have Ephesians 1.10, speaking of the dispensation of the fullness of times. And as we looked at this, I pointed out that there are several phrases here that we have to spend some time understanding. The first phrase had to do with just understanding the meaning of, dis, of a dispensation. What does that mean? 
What does it mean, the administration of or the dispensation of? Second, there's the phrase fullness of times. What exactly does that describe? What does that mean? Uh, Third, what does it mean that he might gather together in one all things in Christ? And then the last phrase, which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him, which in some translations... They try to shift that in him at the end to verse 11, but it is at the end of verse 10. This follows the pattern of, of Paul's syntax and sentence structure throughout this, this opening section. So we looked at the word for dispensation, oikonomia, that it has this idea of being a stewardship, which is a responsibility to manage something. So it has this idea that's used for administration and uh, as a definition, the managing or administration—excuse uh, me—managing or administering the affairs of a household. So history is looked at in terms of this household. A steward is someone in charge of administering the affairs of the house. So in almost every dispensation, there is one group that is given a major responsibility. For example, in the age of Israel, in those dispensation, two dispensations, that is, or three dispensations, the dispensation of the patriarchs, the dispensation of the law, and then the dispensation of the Messiah, in each of those there is a group that is primarily responsible for the dissemination of the word and the preservation of the word and calling the people to a responsible accountability. So that led us into teach the uh, question of what does the Bible teach about dispensations and defining that term a little more, what is a dispensation. So to begin, a dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration. That means it has specific identifiable characteristics. So you know that you've shifted from one area to another area, and that would always come with new revelation. In the Old Testament, mostly through a new covenant, and because of that new covenant, there would be new responsibilities that were identified, and that there were was a new maybe a new steward uh, that was identified. Now, not necessarily always a new steward, because sometimes, as with Israel, when you shift from the dispensation of the patriarchs, to the dispensation of the law or the Torah, you have the giving of a new covenant. But when you see the dispensation of the Messiah come in, it's not uh, a new covenant, but there is a new uh, mandate to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's not simply a message for personal salvation, but it was calling the unbeliever to faith in God's promise of a Savior, a Deliverer, but it was also calling those who were personally saved to living in light of that call to a kingdom and being prepared for that kingdom. So when we talk about dispensationalism, we have seen that it is a theological system. It is not a means of interpretation. A lot of people say, oh, that's just the way you interpret the Bible. No, The way we interpret the Bible is a literal, consistent, historical, exegetical uh, interpretation. That is our way we interpret it. Because we're consistent, we end up with a theological system called dispensationalism. 
Dispensationalism is a theological system that is derived from a consistent literal hermeneutic. So dispensationalism is a theological system which understands that God sovereignly governs the history of the human race through a sequence of divinely directed administrations marked by distinctive periods of time as he works out his plan to destroy sin and evil. Now, that last part is important. Part of that derives from what we're going to look at today, not only in this passage, but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the goal is to end evil. Evil began with the fall of Satan. Evil began in the human race with the temptation by Satan of Adam and Eve in the perfect environment of the garden. Once sin entered into human history, then that kicked in God's plan of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And so as we go through history, God is working out his purposes, the ultimate goal of which is not only his glory, as we've seen, but that happens because he is able, going to finally vanquish evil and death and destroy it and restore all things uh, due to his grace. So as we looked at this, I pointed out last time that there are three essential elements to dispensationalism. And this is the order that I have always presented them because I think this is the best and logical order. It starts with a consistent, literal, grammatical uh, his, uh, interpretation of Scripture. It is literal because we take mean, the meaning of the language in its normal, plain use. That allows for figures of speech. It allows for metaphors. It allows for uh, idioms. And they have specific meaning. But it culminates in an understanding that Jesus Christ will literally return to the earth and establish a 1,000-year kingdom. That kingdom is called the millennium from the Latin word mille, meaning 1,000. And because we believe that a literal interpretation from Revelation 19 has Jesus returned to the earth and then in Revelation 20 established this thousand-year kingdom, that is called a pre-millennial return of Christ. He comes before the millennium and then he establishes his kingdom. When Jesus met with his disciples... We have just observed the Lord's table. When he met with his disciples and uh, initiated the Lord's table, one of the things he said that night was that I will not drink of the vine until I come in my kingdom. We're not in that kingdom yet. Jesus is not sitting up there having a glass of wine every day. He's waiting until he comes in his kingdom. There are those today who, who commonly teach what is called an already not yet view of the kingdom. It's already here to some degree, but not yet fully here. That is an aberration of teaching. That is a complete misunderstanding of Scripture that the kingdom wasn't partially postponed. It was totally postponed because to have the kingdom, you have to have, a, you have, to have subjects, you have to have a king, and you have to have uh, uh, 
a a government, and so that is what is established when he returns. The government is based on the new covenant. That does not come into effect until Jesus returns. Jesus does not sit on the throne of David until he returns to the earth. You have a group that came out of Dallas Seminary, Talbot Seminary, who put forth a view that now dominates those schools called progressive dispensationalism, where they argue based on a spiritual... They had to change their hermeneutic. They had to shift away from a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic to what they call a complementary hermeneutic. See, that's always the problem. That's always how you slip into bad doctrine, is you change the way you interpret Scripture. And so now this this progressive dispensationalism sees Jesus sitting on David's throne at the right hand of the Father, which has no biblical basis whatsoever. But, of course, they use and twist a lot of Scripture in order to make it seem like they have a biblical basis, but they don't. So the first essential element is a consistent literal historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible. The second, which flows from that, is that there is a distinct distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, and he has a future for both. And the third is, which what we focused on more last time, that the overall purpose of God's plan for his creation is his glory. Uh, one day we'll talk more about that, but that's a lot more than what is normally accepted by covenant theologians and others, everybody believes we're to live for the glory of God. But what this is showing is that there's something distinctive about the church age that is related to the glory of God that goes beyond the others. I talked about that a little last time, and it's a major theme in Ephesians, so we will be developing it as we go through Ephesians. 1 Corinthians 10.31, where I ended last time, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, That pretty much includes everything, doesn't it? Whatever you do, whatever you think, everything should be to the glory of God. That is to demonstrate the centrality, the importance, the significance of God in our lives, that we can't live apart from God. He is the one without whom we can't really do anything. There can't be meaning. There can't be real life. There can't be uh, an understanding of the future. Nothing apart from who God is. So he must be central to everything to realize who we are in Christ. John 1.14 tells us that when Jesus came at the first advent, we beheld his glory. That wasn't this brilliant effulgence of light, which we often think of as the Shekinah glory, but it's manifested through his character. And when we glorify God, what we're showing is that the character of God, only someone with that character can, can be at the center of our lives and give value and meaning to every aspect of our lives. And this is what is laid out again and again in Ephesians, and we'll get back to this when we get a little further down into the next section of the first chapter, where in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, we are going to focus on the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's also going to be emphasized again in Ephesians 3:21, where Paul closes out this section saying, to him be glory in the church. But for now, we need to understand the meaning of this full phrase, the dispensation of the fullness of time. We need to understand what does this describe. 
What is the dispensation of the fullness of time? When we understand what it is, I think that will help us answer uh, the second question, which is, when is it? And so we need to uh, address that. So we'll work our way through the language of the text. The word, the dispensation, is the word we've studied already. It's the word for administration, uh, oikonomia. It is a feminine singular uh, accusative. The singular is important. Here it's talking about one dispensation. Okay, now we'll come up on something here at the at the end of this phrase where it says the fullness of times. Times is a plural. So this is the dispensation within a framework of multiple ages or dispensations described as the fullness of the times. So we'll develop that a little more. The word translated fullness is the word on the right. It is the Greek word pleroma, which means fullness or completeness. That's the key word to remember, talking about completion. In many ways, it is a synonym to another word that we have talked about a lot over the years, and that is uh, telos or teleao. Uh, which means to bring something to completion. Often it is poorly translated as to perfect. But what that meant in terms of the Greek language at that time was bringing something to its complete end where everything becomes what it should be. So it's better for us to think of it in terms of the completion of something rather than perfection because we think of perfection as being flawless. And that's not the focus of the word. It means to be something to be brought into, into completion. Now that's important for understanding when this will be. Because it's at a time when history, the times, okay, and history is brought to its completion, its culmination, when the plan of God is completed for redemption and restoration of all Things. So this word, pleroma, is used here as a descriptive genitive. I thought Harold Honer had a great uh, understanding and uh, expansion on the definition here. He said it's a descriptive genitive. It's describing this era. He says it has the idea of a state of being full in the sense of completeness or having reached its goal. What's the Greek word for goal? It's telos. Okay, telos. Now that's important. Um, we have a way that some of you know about where uh, in arguments for the existence of God, we have the idea of the tele- teleological argument. And that's the argument that everything has a purpose and is moving towards a conclusion. So that's the idea here is that this is a dispensation where things are brought to an end. They are brought to the conclusion in God's plan for human history. Now, there's some debate over this, as we'll see, but one of the things that some people have brought up is that this isn't this the same phrase that you have in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 where Paul writes, but when the fullness of the time, now the phrase we have is fullness of times. Notice that in our phrase in Ephesians 1.10, it's times 
which is a plural, but the phrase that we have in Galatians 4.4 is the fullness of the time. It is a singular, and it is not the same word that we have in in Ephesians 1.10. In Ephesians 1.10, we have a, a, a different word here. We have chronos, which has a completely different meaning from kairos, which is in Ephesians 1.10. So they are not... Uh, they are not the same phrase, and they should not be understood as uh, synonymous uh, synonymous phrases where we can use one to expand on and understand uh, and understand the other. Uh, in Galatians, the fullness of time speaks of a particular point of time in history. It is a singular, and it focuses on that particular time when everything was right for the uh, Son of God to come into the world. But in Ephesians, the plural points to the completion of a series of stages, these times. So as you've gone through this progress of dispensations, it comes to a, a resolution. It comes to this uh, fullness or realization of the purpose of history. And so this is... Uh, a, the only other time you have this kind of phraseology is in Luke twenty one twenty four, when Jesus is talking about that uh, the restoration of Israel and uh, talks about the end of Gentile domination, Gentile rule over Jerusalem, and he uses the phrase until the times. Notice the same word there in the Greek; it's a plural. The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It indicates reaching a point in history when that which has been normative up to that point ends and something new comes in. It's a, it, it focuses on a radical shift from one thing to another. And that's indicated by a couple of other things we'll note as we, as we look at the language. So it's not, uh, the, fullness of time, chronos, it is the fullness of times, kairos, indicating a completion of these ages in God's uh, dispensation. So this focuses on that future time when the Messiah will come to rule the earth. It's the times, that is the dispensations or the epochs or the ages that have reached their completion and the time when the Messiah comes to rule on the earth. Now, in relation to this, Harold Honer, in his commentary, now Honer has gone over to what I call the dark side in dispensationalism. He's a progressivist, but he says some good things here in his commentary in Ephesians. He says, um, human history, which throughout the ages has been characterized by incompleteness, is yet to see completeness in the stewardship of Christ. The Gentile nations will be enriched under the authority of the Prince of Peace. Israel's great covenants will be fulfilled, and the church will have been joined to the Lord and have experienced the fruition of all her promised heavenly blessings. The stewardship of the Son will gather under one authority all things that are in heaven and on earth. The revelation of this mystery transcends human understanding but the hope and its certainty are assured. Now, he's focusing on the positive. 
The positive is that Christ is going to come. He's going to establish his rule. At the beginning of his rule, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, you're going to have church-age believers and resurrection bodies ruling and reigning with him. But there are going to be believers who were saved in the tribulation period who now transition still in their mortal bodies, still with the sin nature, into the millennial kingdom. Everyone in the millennial kingdom at the beginning is going to be a believer. But as we know, believers sin and believers can rebel against the authority of God. Uh, these believers are also going to marry and they're going to have children. Their children are going to have their own sin natures and they are going to need to be saved and to trust in Christ as Savior. So from the beginning, there is a perfect administration. There's perfect government. A lot of people say, well, the reason we have the problems we have today is we just don't have perfect government. Well, we'll have perfect government. We'll have perfect environment. We'll have perfect education systems. We won't have perfect parents. And there are other things that won't be perfect. The curse will be partially rolled back because the wolf and the lamb will lie down together, uh, which hasn't been seen since uh, the Garden of Eden. So there's some aspects of the curse that are rolled back. But this millennial kingdom is going to be a time when Jesus is going to, as it progresses and comes to the end, is going to extend his rule and reign and finally and firmly establish his authority, culminating in the destruction of the demonic authorities and rebellious human authorities. And thus, even though it's not an absolutely perfect reign, that's not the issue. The issue is bringing it to this telos, to this end, to this culmination where all things are then brought under the authority of Christ. So Honer's comment focuses on the positive. There is a negative. Christ has to rule with a rod of iron. But no one has taught, unless they just didn't understand the Scripture, that this is a time of total perfect environment. It's not. It's a, a time where it's, it's much more perfect than it's been in this dispensation or since, since the fall. I think it's, it's parallel in some ways to the environment between the garden and the flood, but I think it's going to be more perfect uh, than that, but it's not absolute, absolute perfection. And so this is going to be a time when there's going to be this, this resolution. And then we're told that the purpose of this, that in that dispensation, not necessarily the whole dispensation, but in that dispensation, it brings it to a point that he might gather together in one all things. Now, this is an interesting word in the Greek. It's a compound word made up of the preposition ana, which has the idea of together, and kephalaio, which has the idea of headship. And so literally it has the idea of uniting under one head all things in Christ. Headship in Scripture has to do with authority. So it's bringing all of everything that has been in rebellion against God under the authority of Christ at the end. And what we'll see from a brief look at 1 Corinthians 15 is that this brings things together in a final form where the kingdom will be brought and established. All evil will be expunged and the kingdom is given to God. Now, when does this happen? 
I'm going to look at two views here, uh, primarily one view here, just for a little clarification. When does this dispensation of the fullness of times take place? There is the view of amillennialism. The view of amillennialism, amillennialism means literally no millennium. It's one of those, one of those weird words that got coined because milli is from the Latin. The negative prefix a, the alpha, is Greek. So you have a Greek prefix tacked onto a Latin word. It's no millennium, no literal thousand-year reign of Christ in amillennialism. The kingdom is, is, is spiritual. We're living in that spiritual form of the kingdom now. Jesus, like in progressive dispensationalism, Jesus is on the throne of David. He is ruling from heaven. And this age will just come to completion with the second coming of Christ. So they would reject this fullness of time would be now in their view. The major dispensational view, which is, pre, is premillennialism, you don't have any dispensationalists who aren't premillennial because they have a literal interpretation of Scripture. All dispensationalists are premillennial, but not all premillennialists are dispensational. Okay, you also have what is called historic premills and a couple of other odd odd views, but all dispensationalists are premill. But there's a minor dispensational view. There was a paper given on this at the Chafer Conference a few years ago, and I, I've never commented on it, so I want to address it a little bit here because I've had questions about it ever, ever since. And this was a minor dispensational view that was taken by Clarence Larkin, who wrote a book with lots and lots of charts in it. I bet lots of you have his book called Dispensational Truth. And it has lots and lots and lots of really great charts in it because he was, had an architectural background, and so he, he drew these wonderful, wonderful charts. And a lot of the book is very valuable and very, very helpful. But there's a few things in there where he's uh, typical of some things of his age, and he was relying on a, uh, another work uh, by Trench, that was late 19th century, and they took a, a, an odd view of when this fullness of times was. And it, it, it never gained a lot of acceptance. There were a few that took this view. Several of those guys changed their views later on. And Larkin was the last one to really publish an argument for this view. And I think the reason for that is it just has some exegetical problems that they've never been able to surmount, and so it has just fallen into the dustbin of theological history. When we look at this chart that I have here, we have the rapture. Then the church is taken to heaven. There's a judgment seat of Christ, the marriage of the Lamb, and then at the end of the seven years of tribulation, the church returns as the bride of Christ to the earth to rule and reign in the millennium, the thousand years. This is what I believe is the fullness of time. In this other view, the fullness of time comes after the great white throne judgment. You have the millennial kingdom of a thousand years. That ends with a rebellion of Satan where he is released from the abyss and he leads uh, a mass of, of humanity without number, in rebellion against the Lord, and they're just incinerated, fire and brimstone from heaven, and they're incinerated, and that is the end of evil. They are then judged at the great white throne judgment, and they are assigned to the lake of fire. This is when 1 Corinthians 15 says that 
Christ gives the kingdom to the Father. But in this Larkin Trench view, it uh, is really, it can't be, the millennium can't be the fullness of time because it's not perfect and a couple of other things. And so they put the fullness of time as a distinct dispensation at the beginning of humanity. So it's based on a couple of points. I just want to address these and then we'll be moving on. First thing is they start with this argument that there must be a future period of literally 1,000 generations. Now, they get this from a couple of passages. One of them is Exodus 34, 7, where it states about God that he keeps mercy for thousands, or God is actually speaking here. He says he's keeping mercy for thousands. Now, some translations say thousand, a thousand generations, but that's not in the New King James. It's not in the Greek. Literally, it starts with a Lamed preposition in the, in the Hebrew, which is two, uh, to the thousands. So it doesn't say what the thousands are, but we'll assume generations is there because of some parallel passages. And then it, so there's this contrast of a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, which literally in the Hebrew just says upon the thirds and the fourths. Now, the argument that they present is that since the third and fourth generation is taken literally, the thousand generation should be taken literally, and that's fair. Um, Some of you have heard talk or teaching about the uh, four-generation curse. Now, I've always been a little troubled with that because I've tried to find four generations where it works out like that. You go through the book of Judges, you can't find it. You go through uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, you don't see just four generations, you see it goes on and on and on. In other words, I challenge the assumption that the third and fourth generation should be taken literally. If that's not taken literally, then there's no basis at all for taking a thousand generations literally. Nowhere do you can you find in the Scripture, I haven't been able to find, where the, there is a restriction of God's judgment on only three or four generations. It goes on and on and on, as it did in the northern kingdom and also uh, in, the, in the southern kingdom. So if the comparison here isn't literal three, and four, three or four and literal thousand, then what you're seeing is a metaphorical or idiomatic expression to emphasize the expansiveness of God's grace and forgiveness. Three or four in contrast to thousands. It's a statement that that isn't to be taken literal numbers, but that God's judgment is minimal compared to the expansiveness of his grace. So when we look at that claim that since the third and fourth generation is taken literally, and it has been by a number of dispensationalists, but I, I disagree with that. And several of us who have discussed this in depth all agree that, that, that you, we can't find a literal three or four generation pattern anywhere in the scripture, that the thousand generation should not be taken literally either. So that's the claim that the third and fourth generation is taken literally. Then the problem is that there's no place in the Old Testament where you can find a literal fulfillment of a third and fourth generation. And so the solution is that this is just a figure of speech to contrast the limitation, the, 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 the small part of God's judgment contrast to the expansiveness of God's forgiveness. 
Second passage that they go to is in Psalm 105. You have Psalm 105 and a passage in, in Chronicles. Psalm 105, 6 and 7 focuses on Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. I'm just including these two verses for context. O seed of Abraham. See, he's addressing Israel, the, those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his choice ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So it's emphasizing that in all the earth, God rules. God is sovereign. Psalm 105.8 says, He remembers his covenant forever. The covenant he's talking about is the Abrahamic covenant. This is synonymous parallelism in the Hebrew. He remembers his covenant forever. The word, see that phrase, the word, that is a synonym for the covenant. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. So that for a thousand generations in that second line is parallel as a synonym to forever. So there we see that that for a thousand generations is not to be taken literally here. It is a synonym for forever. And it, that's, that's going to be seen again because it's described again in Psalm 105.10 as an everlasting covenant. So eternal and eternal are uh, comparable to this thousand generation. So it's not to be taken literally. It's an idiomatic phrase. So you have the same thing in First Chronicles 16, 13, and 14. And there's a little difference between the two. In Psalm 105, 8, it's talking about God. He remembers. He does this. In First Chronicles 16, 13, and 14, it's talking about what Israel should do. But other than that, it's parallel. And in First Chronicles 16, 15 to 17, we have remember his covenant forever, and that's parallel to the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. And literally it says to a thousand generations. And same thing in the Psalm 105 is the language is the same in both, both stanzas. It's to forever, to a thousand generations. So again, that just supports the view that these are the synonyms of one another and forever is related to a thousand generations. So that's not a literal number, not to be interpreted literally because the context is using it figuratively. So this confirms that it's a figure of speech for eternity. So you don't need to have an additional dispensation that lasts a thousand generations in order to fulfill that particular statement, which is part of the uh, argument in that Larkin Trench view. The second thing is the order of events, which is where we'll close. In 1 Corinthians 15:20, we read, and this is just the prelude, I'm just giving you this for context, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is defending the doctrine of resurrection from the dead. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then we get to the heart of this issue. In verses 23 to 25, we have a sequence of events chronological sequence 
This is indicated by the time words that I've highlighted in blue. Afterward, then, when, and until. Okay? That indicates a time of a sequential arrangement. But each one in his own order. So this is all the members of the first, gener- first resurrection. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, okay, not at the same time, but afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. That's, that's the rapture and the second coming all wrapped up in one phrase. Then, this is an important word uh, that we'll see in the Greek, and it's an adverb of time, and it means next or after that. It is used in sequences. This, then after that. This, then after that. This, then after that. And there's numerous places where that's substantiated in the Scripture. So, then comes the end. Well, guess can you imagine what that... Greek word for end might be telos, the completion. Then comes the completion. So the completion comes after those who are Christ is coming. Then comes the end, the telos. When, okay, that's going to define when this end is. It is when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. The end comes when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father. That is after he vanquishes Satan and the demons and the unbelievers in the battle of Gog and Magog. How do I know that? Because the next phrase says, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Now, when he talks about the chain of command among the angels, frequently Scripture applies this both to the elect angels and fallen angels. But he's not going to vanquish the elect angels. So when he's putting an end to all rule and authority and power, this is angelic hierarchy of the fallen angels. Okay, He's going to end their chain of command. He's going to end their organization, and that comes to an end. And that happens at Gog and Magog at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's the end the completion of the process which is to destroy sin and evil and to complete the redemption of the universe and of mankind. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority of power for. Now this introduces an explanation. For he must reign, that's the millennial reign, until he puts all enemies under his feet. He puts all enemies under his feet at the battle of Gog and Magog. He rules till then. The Greek word that we find there is the Greek word akri, which indicates the end of one process and the beginning of a totally new stage. And it always means that. So that indicates that that the end comes when he, deliver, when he delivers the kingdom of the Father is at the same time that he ends the demonic and satanic rules and their chain of commands, and that's because they're confined to the lake of fire. And then this is further explained in verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his foot. That's when his reign ends, because this is when he delivers all things uh, to the Father. So the last enemy that is destroyed is death, 
Remember Hades and death at the great white throne judgment give up their inhabitants to uh, judgment. Uh, So verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Do you all figure out all those little third person singular pronouns there? Let me, for he, God the Father, has put all things under his, God the Son's feet. But when he, God the Father, says all things are put under him, God the Son, it is evident that he, God the Father, who puts all things under him, God the Son, is accepted. God the Father still remains the authority over God the Son. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who puts all things under him, that God may be all in all. So what we see is this order. Christ is the first that's resurrected. Then we see the second. In the second point, the completion of the first resurrection occurs in three stages. First, Christ. Second, the rapture. Third, the second coming. Then comes the end, the telos, the completion in 1524. And we've already covered the exegesis there. Uh, Then, verse 4, then he defeats death. Then he delivers the kingdom to the Father. And so when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, this is when uh, this period of history is brought to conclusion. So the millennium is not a failure, which is how they view it, because it's not perfect. It is. It achieves its purpose because at the end of the millennial kingdom, all evil is vanquished and then punished and restricted to the lake of fire. And that is how that uh, should be understood. And the significance for that for us is that God has a purpose for us right now in our spiritual life to prepare us for ruling and reigning in the kingdom when that comes. We are to pursue spiritual maturity now so that we can be spiritually prepared to take up our role in the millennial kingdom when we rule and reign with Christ. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through these things, to come to understand uh, your magnificent plan in bringing an end to sin and evil, and that you will do this in a righteous and just way, demonstrating uh, both your justice and righteousness as well as your grace as you extend that to the human race in many different ways, in many different forms through the dispensations. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening today or here today that is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that they would understand that this is the most important decision that they will ever make in their life, for it determines your eternal destiny. Scripture says the only issue at salvation is believing in Christ. The issue isn't your sin, for that has been paid for by Christ. That has been dealt with. The issue now is whether you will trust in that payment or not. And the instant that you believe in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life, which can never be taken from you. Now, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to study today and to reflect upon you and to worship you. And we pray that you would make these things very clear to us. In Christ's name, amen.